When I say the word church, what immediately comes to mind for you? Do you think perhaps of a physical building, maybe the church that you grew up in perhaps? Maybe a, the inside of a church complete with its red carpet and wooden pews. Maybe when I say the word church, you think of people who have been a part of your life through some very important or difficult moments. Maybe for some of you the word church is not all that positive. You had some bad experiences. You attended a bad members meeting and you never forget it. Maybe a really painful situation from which you are still recovering. Regardless, my point is that the word church is a loaded word with a diversity of meanings and ideas depending upon our background. We, we bring our baggage and our experience, good and bad, into that word church. In fact, just to illustrate this, how many of you would say that you grew up going to church? That would be your experience. Raise your hand. Great, put it down. How many of you did not grow up going to church at all? Let me see your hands. Okay. How many of you who grew up in church would say that the church that you grew up in was 300 people or less? Let me see your hand. Okay, put them down. How many of you, your church was 500 or less? Let me see your hands. How many of you, it was 1,000 or less? Let me see your hands. And then how many of you grew up in a church about this size, about 4,000 people or so? Let me see your hands. <laughs> okay. So. What that should tell you is most of us have no idea what we're doing here, right? So that's, that, that should clearly tell you something, okay? So today what we're gonna talk about, and also next week, is the subject of what does it mean to be the church? And I wanna talk today about what it means to be a church in relationship, and next week you're gonna hear from Dr. Mark Dever on is the church still necessary? Next week is our Think Conference. I hope that you've made time in your schedule. We're bringing you the leading evangelical voice probably in the world on the subject of the church, and it's a real privilege that we're able to have him here, and you will be really, really blessed. We're talking about the subject of church because every single week we get together in the church and I want you to think about, so what exactly does it mean for us to do church? What does it mean that we do church? So think of it this way, what are you, what are you doing here? Even if this is the first time that you've come to church in a long time or if the first time you've ever been in a church. So what, what is this thing that we do? After we completed this facility in 2012, our elders began wrestling with some questions about how do we care for a large congregation. Last couple weeks, we've had over 4,400 people here between North Indy and Fishers. We began wrestling with that question of what do we do? How do we care for our people? We, we wanted to know first, how do we encourage our church towards a greater sense of living life on mission? Some of you will remember I've used the analogy before of some churches or people have a mindset of their church as a cruise ship when it really is a battleship. They're both boats, but they couldn't be any more different. And so as a result of that, we launched our next door mission, this emphasis of thinking, what if we put campuses 
more closely located to where people live, and the Fishers Campus was our first foray into that, and it's gone exceptionally well. It's helped not only North Indy, but also the Fishers people to think about what it means to be life, what it means to do life on mission. The second question that our elders have been wrestling with is, how do we shepherd a large congregation? For years, we've used the phrase, we wanna help a big church feel small, and I think we've done a pretty good job with that, but what does it look like to not just have it feel small, but to have us really care for the souls of our people? So there's something great about being a part of a large church. It, it allows us to do some wonderful things. This is the third year in a row that our Christmas offering has been over a million dollars. We're able to help plant Nehemiah Bible Church, things that we're doing in the Brookside neighborhoods. Our neighborhood is, is incredible. And as well, just the success of Fishers and that church campus is helped because of the size of the ministry. You don't get 450 people to go and to be in Fishers um, easily. And so there's some things to be really thankful for. At the same time, let's be honest, there are some downsides. A church this large can be overwhelming. Some of you experienced that. You kind of, when you first came, you're like, whoa. Or it can be isolating. You can come and feel very alone. Or worse, you can come and hide. It makes it more challenging, the size of the congregation, it makes it more challenging to know if someone has stopped coming to church or if they're not here anymore. Sometimes it makes it harder to know about the needs in the body. Smaller churches have other problems too, and it's not like they can figure out always who is there and who isn't, but the fact of the matter is, is the smaller scale makes that a little bit easier. So we took some steps last year towards a more effective shepherding model amongst our elders. Our elders have always done a great job with this. We have always had a formal membership process. We've practiced church discipline. We've taken the needs of our people seriously, but the fact remains that in the last eight years, our church has nearly doubled. And so therefore, our shepherding model has needed to grow and adjust. And so the church should always be reforming and we should always be thinking about how is it that we do church? And what I want you to think about with me this morning is how do you do church in terms of relationships with one another? Part of that dynamic of what it means to do church relates to the issue of membership. The last two years our elders have been wrestling with two primary texts in the New Testament that speak to an elder's role as it relates to a congregation. Here they are. First Peter 5 says this, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, here's the command, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And then another text that talks about the accountability that we have before God is Hebrews 13. It says, for they, your leaders, are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And what these texts tell us is that elders, those who are spiritual leaders, pastors, and lay elders have a responsibility for the care of a particular group of people, a people that we are gonna have to give an account for before the Lord. And so the question is, who exactly is that people? Who are those people? And we would say those people, the ones to whom we have to give an account for, are our members. 
Now, that doesn't mean that if you're not a church member that we're not gonna provide spiritual care for you. No one will ever find me saying, if you come up and say, hey, can you pray for me? I'm never gonna ask you, uh, I don't know, are you a member or not? I'm not, I'm not gonna do that. At the same time, there is a recognition that there needs to be some sort of official and formal recognition that there is a group of people over whom our elders biblically have to provide spiritual care, watch over their souls, and to be able to give an account. So, why is membership important? Before we get into Ephesians 4, let me, Ephesians 2, let me give you four reasons. Four reasons. Here, if you're not a member, here's why I think you should be a member. If you are already a member, here's what it is that you've committed yourself to and why it's important. And if you're not a Christian and you don't, what, is, what do you mean church membership? Here's why we think it's important to be a member of a church, to covenant with a group of people. First, because membership affirms your belief in Jesus. Membership affirms your belief in Jesus. Listen, there is something powerful, not just about you saying, I'm a Christian, or I believe the gospel, I've received Jesus as my savior, there's something really powerful and helpful about someone else, someone in spiritual leadership, hearing the story of your conversion, hearing your belief in the gospel, hearing, hearing you articulate how you came to faith in Christ, and saying, yes, you are a Christian. And that's something that's not only in the New Testament, but something that's incredibly helpful. Membership affirms your belief in Jesus. Number two, membership makes your faith public. By joining a church, you openly and officially identify yourself as a Christian. You say, I'm a follower of Jesus, and these are the people who I do life with. Third, membership makes you accountable. Who is keeping watch over your soul? Who are you caring for and watching over? Who will seek you out if you were to wander away? Church membership settles those questions. And finally, number four, membership unites you to a people. You see, in the Bible, spiritual growth was never intended to be something that we do on our own entirely. Certainly, we, we, we grow individually, but spiritual growth was meant to be something that we do in a community of people. In fact, that's the normal way that human beings are supposed to interact. So... What do you call somebody who lives all by themselves, doesn't talk to anybody, and is completely isolated? What would you call that person? Hermit. Very good. Good. What would you call somebody who lives in community, who's around with other people, has lots of relationships? Normal, right? <laughs> so, what's true of humanity is also true of your walk with Christ. Those relationships that are part of your relational sphere are part of God's design to help you grow. And listen, here's another thing. In the midst of a culture that's characterized by low commitment, individualism, and misplaced identity, church membership makes a very powerful statement about the gospel, where we say, it's not all about me, I am gonna be committed and my identity is not just me, but it's with a group of people. It means that you've identified with a body of believers such that your relationship with the people in that body is different than the relationships with people who are not a part of that body. So in other words, if you're at work and you see a brother or sister who's doing something that they shouldn't do, you, you might have an ethical obligation to say something to them just because they're a fellow human being, but you have a significant obligation if they are a member of the church to which you belong. The relationship dynamics are different 
because of what it means to be part of the same church. Now, Ephesians 2 is our text. How are church relationships different? What this text helps us to see is that coming to church is more than just something that you do on a weekly basis. It's more than just a place that you go. It's more than just a service that you attend. Being a part of a church fundamentally affects one's identity and their experience of spiritual realities that are communicated in the Bible about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So, church relationships really answer two key questions. Who am I and where do I belong? Those questions are so fundamental to humanity, that's why your junior high and senior high years were so traumatic, because <laughs> you're trying to figure out who am I and where do I belong? That's why social media has such power, because of its belonging qualities and who am I and where, where is my community? And these questions are not only fundamental to our life experience, they're actually addressed in the gospel and in the community of the gospel, namely the church. Let me show you how this works in Ephesians 2. There are three key sections in verses 11 through 22, and they're marked by three um, series of words. The first word is the word therefore in verse 11, and then if you were to look at verse 13, the words but now, that's the second section, and the final section is in verse 19 where it says, so then. Each of these sections marked by these words, therefore, but now, and so then, tell us something important about the church. Let me unpack this for you. First, therefore, in verse 11. It says this, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, stop there. That word therefore is an important word. It indicates that something is gonna come in the text that's by implication of what has come previously. So think of it as a pivot word. The question is, why does Paul, the author here, use the word therefore in this particular passage? Well, it's because of what he said previously. Well, what has he said previously? Well, listen to Ephesians 2 and verse 4. Essentially, what Paul talks about in verses 4 and 5 and 8 and 9 is the heart or the essence of what Christianity is all about. So if you wanted to summarize, what does it mean to be a Christian? Or if you wanted to know, what is the difference between Christianity and all other religions on the earth, what's the difference? These four verses tell you. So here they are. What's the difference? Verse four, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. And then verses eight and nine, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the results of works, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is essentially the good news of the Bible. This is the gospel, which essentially means that people are reconciled with their creator, how? How are people made right with their God? Well. According to the Bible, they receive forgiveness through the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus, as the perfect and sinless son, provides atonement for sins. He pays for our sins for those who put their faith in him. So the essential difference between Christianity and all the religions is this, that human beings are made righteous not by the works that we do, but rather by the work of Jesus. 
Christians do not work in order for God to forgive them or work in order for God to be merciful to them. Instead, God gives them forgiveness as a gift through the work of Jesus, and that's why we call the gospel grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So that's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And then we pick it up in verse 11, the implication of that then, or what Paul wants them to think about is where they were prior to receiving that grace. He describes them not only as individuals, but in verses 11 to 12, he describes them as a people, which means that our lost and sinful condition, rescued by Christ, is not only something that happens to individuals, but it's something that when those individuals get together, it's happened to an entire people. Notice how he describes their spiritual condition. Verse 11, therefore remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time, here's the first characteristic, what were they like before they came to faith in Christ? What were they like before they put their trust in Jesus? What were they like before they experienced grace? They were, not just individually, but as a people, they were separated from Christ. In other words, they were not united to the one person who could save them. Why can only Jesus save them? Because only Jesus was the one who paid for their sins. Secondly, not only are they separated from Christ, they're also alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. What does that mean? It means that they were not considered citizens In God's kingdom, they were not a part of his spiritual family. Next, they were strangers to the covenants of promise, which means they were cut off from all the spiritual blessings that related to being the children of God. They also have, they had no hope, which means they were trapped in an endless and depressing cycle of failure, and that they are without God in the world, which means they are They are alienated from their creator. They are under divine judgment. In other words, before Christ, how would you describe these people? They were lost. They were spiritual outsiders. You see, part of the amazing story of what it means to be a Christian is what God has saved you from. All of us have a past. No one gets a pass on the past. We all have them. Every Christian is marked by sin, separation, alienation, judgment, and hopelessness. We all have failures in our history. We're all a mess. The picture that Dale showed you of Todd DeKrieger, Todd and I went to high school together. We played basketball together. He came to faith in Christ after high school. He was not saved in high school. Married a young lady who I grew up with in our church, then he went off to the mission field. One of the most amazing stories of transformations. I loved the work that God had done in his life. And I'll also never forget, when I visited him in Togo, we were sitting around the dinner table, he goes, hey, Rogop, you remember that time we were playing basketball and I thought, oh no. Because I knew exactly where he was gonna go. Remember that time we were like getting after it? Remember that? And you threw an elbow at me? And I said, I do. What do you think about that? (laughs) This is an awkward moment. 
Because the fact of the matter is that he wasn't a Christian at the time, but I was. And you know, when those situations come up in our lives, it's good to be reminded, isn't it, that we all have a past. We all do. And the beautiful thing about the church is not that we somehow don't have a past, but it's that we have a king named Jesus who took care of our past, who took care of our sins, who cleansed us. So if you got a past that's really colorful, you got things in your background that you just are really ashamed of, can I just tell you, welcome to the party. The fact of the matter is we all have issues, we all have problems, we all have needs, but the thing that marks the people of God is that they've met a savior who's forgiven them of everything they've ever done. And that's why, that's why we sing. That's why Christians celebrate the beauty of God's grace. The next word, or words, is the words, but now. Verses 13 to 18. Verses 13 to 18 tell us that there is this beautiful thing that's happened to us in Christ. But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostilities. What he's saying there is that Christ breaks down the barrier, in this case between Jews and Gentiles. Jesus himself in his flesh breaks down this dividing wall. Verse 15, he abolishes the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. Why one new man? Because the old man was the man in Adam. The Bible says in Adam all died, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So there's one new man, which is namely Christ. And then verses 16 and 17, and might reconcile us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I think he means it, the hostility not only between us and God, but the hostility between one another. In other words, people who believe the gospel have a new basis for relationships with one another. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. I think he means here that those who were near are those who are sort of spiritually minded people and those who are far off are those who are irreligious. And he preached to both groups. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So what's happening here is that Paul is talking not only about individuals, but he's saying now together we, we have access to the Father, and we have this access in prayer together in, because of the work of Christ. So Paul intends for this to be a laundry list of spiritual benefits which spiritually-minded believers who follow Jesus should celebrate individually and corporately. What they should celebrate is that something glorious, something supernatural, something life-altering has taken place, and the effect of that is that when the church gathers, or when you covenant with a group of people, you're not just joining a church, you're not just attending a place of worship, there's something significantly more that's happening in those relationships and in what it means to be the church. Look at verse 19, here's the next word. So the word therefore in verse 11, the word but now, words but now in verse 13, and then verse 19, so then, so here's the conclusion. What does he say? So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but now you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So you are fellow citizens. This is an amazing verse. It means 
that instead of being strangers and aliens, those who put their faith in Jesus are now fellow citizens with the saints, that they, they belong to something beyond themselves. They're, they're in effect given a new identity, they're given a new connection to one another, that they're not just citizens, but they're fellow citizens, and they share something spiritually significant with other followers of Jesus, which means that if you ever travel and go overseas and you land in a country, the language that you can't speak, and you meet somebody else who's a follower of Jesus, there is a strange connection that you have with that brother or sister, even though you've not grown up in the same culture, you don't speak the same language, and you may have never even met, but the fact that you both know Jesus binds you together in a way that is really beautiful. He also calls you the household of God. Verse 19, no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is a familial term. It means that you're part of something that has a relational connectedness to it. It resembles belonging or, or being a part of a family. So therefore, church is more than just a place that you worship. It's a family. So if your relationship with this particular church, College Park Church, is simply a place that you go to and nobody knows you, and you just come in and you go out, well, I'll let you do that for a little while. But I'm here to tell you, that is not good for your soul, for your life long term. You may be healing. You may be in the process of recovering. You may just need some time to just kind of chill and, and get into the flow of things, but the fact of the matter remains that if you're not connected to other believers, if there's in a sense of family, if there's in a sense that you know others and they know you, you're missing out on the essence of what it means to experience the beauty of Christ in the fellowship of the body of believers. So fellow citizens, household, and then he talks about temple. It's interesting that he says this, verse 20, built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, notice this, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's a very significant statement because in the Old Testament, the temple was everything. It's where the people of God went. It's where God dwelt. It was the focal point of worship. And what he says here is now that the temple is not a physical location, but rather this temple are the believers who are gathered in Jesus' name. The believers are the new temple. And then it even says that as, these, as this temple progresses, it grows, it's joined together, so it's something that's organic. So there's this new temple, and this new temple is alive. It's comprised of people who are joined together, and God adds new people to their midst, it means that that temple is growing and changing, which is why when new members become a part of our church, we ought to celebrate because God's bringing in new gifts and new abilities. So if you're a member and today you were voted in, we're glad you're here because you're part of whatever God has next for our church and you becoming a part of this church is a really important part of what God has for us in our future. And then finally, he says, in him you also are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So there's a, there's a supernatural dynamic to this here. The, the people of God are being built together into a dwelling place for God. I mean, that, that was the hallmark and the purpose of the temple in the Old Testament. God met with his people in the temple and now, he no longer dwells in the temple, but rather he dwells 
in his people, and as they gather, there is this supernatural reality born by the Spirit, where as the body of Christ meets together, there's something that connects heaven and earth in that moment. Is that how you think about church? When you, when you woke up this morning and thought about coming to this room today, did you think, I'm coming to encounter the living God? When you, when you visit with people after the services or connect with one another in small groups, do you, do you think about the church through this lens of a supernaturally born community of people who are connected to one another so deeply and so significantly because of the redemption that they have in Christ? Do you see that, that Paul's image and the New Testament image of the church is that it was meant to be more than just a place that you go. It's meant to be so much more than a service you attend. God's design for the church was it was supposed to be a place where you belong. So let me put it this way, and I'll say this lovingly blunt. So if you're here for a while and then you leave and, and, and our elders don't know, that's on us at one level. But if you're here and you haven't connected with anybody and you leave and nobody knows, that's also on you. The fact of the matter is the more you connect in relationships, the safer your walk with Christ becomes. And I wanna encourage some of you to make some steps and some progress towards getting connected with other believers and what it means to have people know who you really are and for you to know who they are so you can walk together and find what it means to have this relationship that not only changes your heart, but it changes then how you relate to other people. And in our context, the, the moment that we make that like official is what we call church membership, where we identify these are the people with whom I have covenanted together. These are the people who I've identified and said, these are the people who I'm gonna walk with Jesus. And I think it's a really important statement to make especially in the midst of a culture that's low on commitment, high on individualism, and doesn't necessarily want any organization or any entity speaking into their life. So we're gonna enter into another season here at our church called Covenant Renewal. From March 1st to April 1st, we're going to ask those of you who are members, we're gonna send you an email or a letter and ask you just to take some time to review the church covenant that we're gonna read at the end Think about what it means to be a member of this church, what, how it connects you to the gospel, how it connects you to relationships with one another, and just respond back to us that yes, I'm here, yes, I've read the covenant, and use this as an opportunity just to remind yourself of the significance of this. Now, we did this last year, and some of you might think in the back of your minds, look, we just did this last year, why are we doing this again? Well, my answer to you would be this. Would you say that to your wife about your anniversary? <laughs> Actually, let me, let me rephrase that. Do not say that to your wife about your anniversary. We just did this last year, like what's the big deal? So yesterday was Savannah's 10th birthday. I'm feeling really old, like no more single digits in our house. I'm dying, so. <laughs> And I didn't say to her in the ramp up to her birthday, honey, we've done nine of these. Why do I have to do another? 
There are some things in life that are important enough to do on a regular basis. Now, our elders don't know if we're going to do it every single year or whatnot, but it served us so well last year. We, we saw some great fruit come out of our last season of covenant renewal, and we think it'd be important for us to do it again. A couple examples. What happened? As a part of the thing that you'll receive if you're a member, we receive back prayer requests for our elders to pray for you as a church. It's a great opportunity for us to connect in that way. And we received 750 prayer requests last year that our elders prayed. We prayed over every single one of those. We learned some great things about what's going on in the life of our body. It helped us to discover in the course of our review of our membership that our membership roles were not as clean as what we had thought. We had a number of people who had transferred to other churches, some people who were no longer attending, other people who had just struggles that they had just kind of either left or they were still here and they had some struggles and they needed to talk to an elder or a staff person. It was really helpful. There were about 600 people who we followed up with, with in one way or another with an elder or with a staff member. It helped us to get our membership count more accurate and it's not about the numbers except that each number represents a person. And so we've found at the end of 2015 that we had 2,210 members. Today we have 2,483. So the fact of the matter is, is we use this as a tool to try and help us do a better job of shepherding. In a smaller church or another setting, someone might hand a, an attendance card by every single week, or in my home church, it was called the friendship booklet. We used to pass it along and sign our names in it so we could just know who was here every week. And this is just our way of trying to figure out, so exactly who really is here. It's also time for, if you're not a member, to think about becoming a member of our church. It's just time to kind of raise awareness again of the importance of membership. With a church as large as ours, we, we need to take some, some large-scale efforts every once in a while in order to keep track of who's here and who isn't. And you know, we do that in other ways. For instance, if you have a small family, you keep track of your kids in one way. If you're a large family, you keep track of them in an entirely different way. In fact, there's a, there's a family, um, Todd and Paula Gates, they are members at the uh, Fishers campus. They have six beautiful boys. And uh, they were um, uh, welcoming people into the Fishers campus a few months ago when I happened to be there. I was over at our incubator, and it was hilarious. They had all six of those boys lined up, and they had formed like a tunnel as people were coming into church. They were cheering them on as they were coming, and let's go to church, let's go to church. I mean, it was awesome as they're walking in. We asked them, what are some uniquenesses of having a large family? Here's a few things that they said. When we make sandwiches, we use the entire loaf. When we go out to eat, the tip is automatically added because we're a party of eight or more. <laughs> when we drive through the city, we use something that looks like a church bus. And here's the other thing they said. And when we get in the car, we usually count our children. They go through, one, two, three, four, five, six. All right, let's go, All right? My wife grew, in a large, grew up in a large family and forever in infamy will live the story of the time when they left little Emily at church for a long time because no one knew that she wasn't there. So when you're a large family, you, you count intentionally. There are other things that you do when you're a large family and I would tell you that covenant renewal is just something that we do as a church, at least right now, in order to help us figure out who's here and who isn't. And for you, it's a great opportunity to think about what it really means to be the church, that this is not just a place that you attend or a place that you go to or a service that you're a part of, but rather it means there's something bigger that's happening here. It means that we're a dwelling place 
for God's Spirit. It means that we're part of a family. It means that we're relationally connected to one another in ways that are unique and powerful. It means that there ought to be relationships in the context of this church that wouldn't work anywhere else, but they work here because we have a common relationship with Jesus. There ought to be relationships in this body that people on the outside would look at and go, how in the world are you friends? Like, you guys are completely different. You come from very different backgrounds. And the thing that makes a difference is the fact that you both know Jesus. The fact that you have your sins forgiven. The fact that you have a common mission in life. So the calling here is for all of us to consider what does it mean to be the church? And if you're a member, to renew your commitment to the covenant of what it means for you to belong to one another. With that, I want you to read along with me, not out loud, I'll read it to you. This is the church covenant, and as we read this, I want you to hear the importance of the words that are here, the significance of what these words mean, and how unusual it is to make these kind of statements today. And that makes what we're gonna read even more important. Having been led by the Holy Spirit to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and on the public confession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do now, in the presence of God and in this assembly, solemnly and joyfully endeavor to keep the spirit of this covenant as one body in Christ. We purpose, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love, to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and love, to promote its fruitfulness and spirituality to attend its services regularly, to sustain its worship, ordinances, and doctrines, to submit to its discipline and to the authority of its officers, to give it a sacred preeminence over all institutions of human origin, to give faithfully of time and talent in its activities, to contribute cheerfully and regularly as God has prospered us, to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, to the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel throughout all nations. We purpose to maintain family and private devotion to the Lord, to train our children according to the word of God, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, to walk carefully in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, and exemplary in our conduct, to abstain from all activities, habits, and lifestyles that dishonor our Lord Jesus Christ, cause stumbling to a fellow believer, or hinder the gospel witness, to be zealous in our efforts to advance the cause of Christ our Savior and to give him preeminence in all things. We further purpose to encourage one another in the blessed hope of our Lord's return, to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember each other in prayer, to aid each other in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy in feelings and courtesy in speech, to be slow to take offense and always ready for reconciliation. We moreover purpose that when we leave this church, we will as soon as possible unite with another church of like faith where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. You know what strikes me about that covenant? Is both the extent of what we commit ourselves to and the unusualness of what a body of people who really live that out would really be like in the midst of the world. And can I just remind you, our world needs to see healthy churches. Our world needs to see people who have pasts, who've met Christ, who get along and love one another and serve one another. Our world needs to see the beauty of what it means for the church to be the church. And here's the final thing, and you need a healthy church. 
a place where you can be taught, a place where you can be loved, a place where you can be confronted, a place where you can grow, a place where you can raise a family and see the influence of a gospel community poured out on the hearts and lives of your children. I thank God for a church filled with godly men who have helped my sons know how to follow Jesus in a way that's different than me. See, I don't want them to grow up looking like me. I want them to grow up looking like Jesus. And in order for that to happen, I need other people who also walk with Jesus to help them know what Jesus looks like because Jesus doesn't look like me. I wanna look like him. And that takes all of you in order to really make that portrait of who he is clear and biblical and right. So let's be the church. Let's build relationships. And let's have the kind of body of believers that makes the gospel attractive to a world that so desperately needs it. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and its ability to speak to us about things that are so foundational to who we are, matters of being, matters of belonging. We pray that you would make us the kind of people who exemplify Christ, and even as we leave today, help us to be sensitive to the needs of people around us, help us not to be in a hurry, help us to be concerned for how we can care for one another. We're gathered here as the body, and so you've had us here for a reason and for a purpose today. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to solidify the depths of those relationships within this body and make us a people who give you glory because of what it means for us to be the church. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.